Please come in. I don't feel safe without someone in the house. Thanks, Mrs. Robinson. But but I gotta get back home. Please. Would you like a drink? I drove you home, and I was glad to do that. But I've got lots on my mind, and I sh I should be getting home. Please stay until my husband gets back. I hate being in the house on my own. When do you expect him back? I don't know. He could be hours. What are you doing? Could you help me with my MP3 player? I need to play something for you. Your MP3 player? Yes, I really want you to experience something. Something produced by the University of Manchester's Jarrell Bank facility. Mrs. Robinson, are you trying to educate me? Yes, Benjamin. I do believe I am. The Jodcast. The perfect gift for Father's Day. With Nick Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Megan Argo, and David Alt. The Jodcast. June edition. Hello and welcome to the June edition of the Jodcast. Joining us today are Nick and Stuart. Hi, hi there, guys. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. We're here on a nice, bright, sunny afternoon at Jodrell Bank. And it's dark and cloudy down here in London. Aww. It's been raining all day. Uh, so, coming this month, we've got our interview with Jocelyn Bell Burnell on her discovery of pulsars in 1967. We've got the night sky with Ian Morrison and all sorts of news about what's happening at the Jodrell Bank Visitor Centre this month. We've also got reviews and all of the details about the website. But first, before all of that, we've got the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, new class of supernova discovered, evidence that Mercury has a molten core, and a fossil star discovered in the Milky Way. Supernovae in other galaxies are a regular occurrence, with a few hundred usually being reported each year. One supernova discovered in September 2006 has proved to be rather unusual. Spotted in a galaxy known as NGC 1260, at a distance of 260 million light-years in the constellation of Cetus, SN 2006-GY peaked at an apparent magnitude of 14.8. At that distance, the apparent brightness of this explosion means that it must have been about 100 times more energetic than typical supernovae explosions, and makes it the brightest supernova event ever detected. Subsequent X-ray observations made with the Chandra satellite have ruled out some mechanisms for the cause of the explosion, leading astronomers to conclude that this is a new type of supernova. Normal supernovae occur when massive stars use up their fuel and their cores collapse under gravity, leaving behind a dense neutron star at the centre of an expanding nebula caused by the explosion. In the case of 2006-GY, however, the mechanism is thought to be somewhat different. In the case of very massive stars, under certain conditions, so many high-energy gamma rays are produced in the core that some of them are converted into particle-antiparticle pairs. The resulting drop in the amount of radiation causes the star to begin collapsing under its own gravity. This leads to a runaway thermonuclear reaction leading to an explosion which rips the star apart and sends the remains flying out into space. It is thought that the current mass loss from Eta Carina, a massive star within our own galaxy, is similar to that which took place before the explosion of the star which became 2006 GY. Should Eta Carina explode sometime soon, it will become one of the most spectacular natural light shows for a long time. Researchers using three of the largest radio telescopes on Earth have measured tiny wobbles in the orbit of Mercury 
and found the strongest evidence yet that it has a molten core. The debate over the nature of the interior of Mercury has been ongoing since the Mariner 10 spacecraft visited the closest planet to the Sun in the mid-1970s. Mercury, in common with the other rocky planets, is thought to consist of a silicate mantle surrounding an iron core, which would have been molten in the past when the planet was younger and hotter. Since smaller planets cool faster than larger ones, it was thought that Mercury was too small to currently have a molten core. But what Mariner 10 found was that Mercury had a weak magnetic field, a characteristic of the existence of a molten core. The team, which includes researchers from Cornell University and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, used the 70-metre antenna at Goldstone in California, the 305-metre Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico, and the 100-metre Greenbank Telescope in West Virginia, to measure the spin of Mercury for evidence of a liquid core. The technique involved sending a powerful radar signal to Mercury, and using the telescopes to detect the signal's echo coming back from the planet's surface. Accurate measurements of the speckle pattern detected by the telescopes allowed the astronomers to calculate the spin rate of Mercury accurate to one part in 100,000, and look for the wobbles in the orbit known as librations. These librations are caused by the Sun's gravity exerting torques on the slightly asymmetrical shape of the planet. The results from the 21 individual measurements show that the librations are about twice as big as those that would be expected from a completely solid planet, but are consistent with a planet having a molten core. For such a small planet to still have a molten core, it is likely that the core material contains significant amounts of lighter elements, such as sulphur, which lower the melting point and so allow it to remain molten for longer as the planet slowly cools. Astronomers using the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope in Chile have found a star which is almost as old as the universe. Measuring the age of a star is tricky, but the technique used is similar to the carbon dating process used on Earth by archaeologists to date historical artefacts. This method of carbon dating can be used to measure ages of up to a few tens of thousands of years. But stars are much older than this, so instead of measuring the amount of carbon-14, stars are dated by measuring the abundance of radioactive elements such as thorium or uranium. This requires very sensitive observations, so large telescopes, like the 8.2-metre telescopes of the VLT, are required. To accurately measure the age of a star, the right choice of radioactive element is vital. If an isotope decays too quickly, then there will be none left to measure. If it decays too slowly, then an accurate age becomes hard to determine. One of the VLT telescopes, together with a spectrometer working in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum where signatures of uranium can be found, the age of a star, known as HE1523-0901, was determined. Using the abundance of uranium, together with those of europium, osmium and iridium, the group found that this star is 13.2 billion years old. This makes the star almost as old as the universe, estimated to be 13.7 billion years old, and shows that it formed very early on in the history of our galaxy. And finally... A transient object seen in the galaxy M85 is possibly the first observation of a new class of stellar explosion. The object was unusual because it was too faint to be a supernova, but too bright to be an ordinary nova, very red in colour, and expanded much slower than either novae, supernovae or gamma-ray bursts. It was detected during the Lick Observatory supernova search, and followed up using the Palomar, Hale and Keck telescopes. The team who led the follow-up, led by Srinivas Kulkarni at the California Institute of Technology, suggests that the event was caused by the merger of two ordinary stars in a process known as common envelope evolution, and have named the class of objects Luminous Red Novi. Thanks, Megan. And do remember that translations of the news available in French, Portuguese, Chinese and Farsi 
are available from the website. Okay, Dave, talking about the website, I think we should probably remind our listeners what is available on the website in case they don't already know. Um, we have a whole load of RSS feeds. We have one for each of the segments of the Jodcast. So you can download the interviews by themselves. You can download the Night Sky segment. You can download the Ask an Astronomer segment. And it saves you having to download the whole show if you just want to hear one part of it. So just to, just to remind us all, each of these segments has a separate RSS feed. You can subscribe to them separately. Yeah. So you can add the RSS feed to your favorite podcatcher or to iTunes or something like that. Okay, so you don't have to download the entire show every single month. You can pick and mix as you as you see. Yeah, and you could you could make your own show, put the show in a different order if you want to. Oh, yeah. Who needs an editor? <laughs> the only thing is you don't get us waffling in between. That might be a good thing, mind you. Possibly true. Um, but you can also download lower and higher bandwidth versions of the Jodcast as well. We have separate feeds for both of those editions of the Jodcast. So if you are struggling to download our large file sizes, then get yourself connected to the low bandwidth version. The other thing I should mention is that we have a full archive of all our past shows and each show has its own show notes page which has links to all the things that we talk about. Yeah, so if you want to see the the pictures or graphics or read more about what we're talking about, what our interviewees are talking about, then do check out the show notes and, and learn a little bit more. Yeah, we even link to other podcasts about similar topics. So there's a lot to learn out there and we link to it all. Yes, it's all out there for you to find just in the same way that 40 years ago... Jocelyn Bell discovered pulsars. Guys, how did you manage to speak to to such an important figure? Well, when we were in Preston at the National Astronomy Meeting, Stuart and I managed to talk with Jocelyn Bell about her discovery, and it was a great interview, wasn't it, Stuart? It was. was, I, I was fascinated throughout the whole thing. It was exciting. It was exciting. It was. Even after even after 40 years, you could tell that uh, it was a pivotal moment in certainly her life and, and, and in science in general. It was fantastic. Yeah. Well, I, I can't wait any longer, so let's hear it. Well, please start us off with, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, a quick history about the discovery that you made of pulsars. Right. So the discovery of pulsars, which was 40 years ago this year, 1967. Scary. Uh, I was a grad student in Cambridge working for my doctorate, and my thesis project was to identify quasars, which are very distant, very energetic objects, still quite mysterious, newly discovered then, and very mysterious, very sexy things. So I was supposed to be finding quasars and having a stab at measuring how compact they were, measuring their angular diameter. And in fact, that's what my thesis was on, because by the time the pulsars came along, it was too late to change the title of the thesis. And the pulsars went in an appendix. The technique we were using involved scanning the sky regularly, and we were scanning it using a short time constant, a short integration time, like taking a rapid exposure in photography. So you see things that are changing quite fast. And after running this survey for a month or so, I started very occasionally picking up a curious signal that I couldn't make sense of. It didn't seem to be one of the quasars I was looking for, didn't look right. The other thing one picks up in abundance with a radio telescope is artificial interference. Badly suppressed equipment, sparking thermostats, um, things like that. That signal didn't look really like artificial interference either for some reason and I think the first 
few times I saw it, I simply logged it with a question mark. But your brain remembers things that you don't realise it remembers. And by about the fourth or fifth time I came across this signal, my brain said, you've seen something like this before. And that's actually quite remarkable because that signal occupied about a quarter inch on the chart recording paper. And each scan of the sky took 400 feet or each day of operation produced 100 feet of chart paper. So I was remembering the odd quarter inch in hundreds of feet of chart paper. Presumably all the rest of what you were recording, the rest of the 400 feet of chart paper was... Right, it was what you were interested in. It was the, the, the raw data of your experiment that you were trying to achieve. It was just that one little niggling that, moat. That one little niggling bit in amongst all the other stuff that one understood reasonably, yes. Uh, one didn't like the interference, but it's fact of radio astronomers' lives. And there were the quasars that we were meant to be looking for, so that was very reassuring. But yeah, it niggled. And... My brain actually did a double take. It didn't just say, you've seen this signal before somewhere, haven't you? It said, you've seen this signal before, haven't you, from that bit of sky? Was it not? And then it's quite easy, because you go back to the chart recordings that cover that bit of sky, and you search them all, and you find that, yeah, just once or twice when looking at that bit of sky, there was this signal that I couldn't make sense of. So it couldn't be coincidence, that the, the interference only occurred when you were looking at that one patch of sky? Well, that was something we had to consider. Um, it looked like something cosmic because it seemed to go round with the constellations. Mm. But you couldn't be absolutely sure. Now, one of the problems was all that signal was jammed into a quarter inch. We had the chart paper running slowly. And what we actually needed was the equivalent of a photographic enlargement, blow it up so that you could actually see what the signal was. And if you're using chart recorders, that means running the paper faster through the chart recorder and spreading out the signal. But the snag was you couldn't just switch the chart recorder to high speed and leave it because it would run through all the paper in 20 minutes. <laughs> and it was chore enough going out to the observatory each day to change paper, put ink in the inkwells and so on. So I discussed this with my supervisor and we decided that I'd go out to the observatory each day at the appropriate time, switch to high-speed chart recording for the relevant five minutes, you know, be generous with the time, switch off the high-speed recording back to normal speed and back to the normal survey. And I did that for a month, and there was absolutely nothing except the standard hiss, the receiver noise, the kind of hiss you get on a radio when it's not properly tuned to a station. And that wasn't what I was there for. <laughs> but that's very much life as a research student. Yeah. There's a lot of yes. um, patient non-results. <laughs> it's doggedness. I'm surprised you, you lasted a month of, of finding no signal. That's... Well, I lasted a month. And then one day there was a very interesting lecture in Cambridge that coincided with when I should be at the observatory. And I thought, stuff this, I'm going to the lecture. So I went to the lecture which I still remember very clearly. It was a lecture about ageing. Um, it, it was a lunchtime, you know, bring your own lunch in a brown bag kind of thing and listen mm. to a speaker. Um, very good talk. Um, gets more relevant as you get older. Too. <laughs> <laughs> and next morning when I went out to the observatory for the routine paper change, change, I discovered that the source had reappeared and there was this funny scruffy signal again. 
and I'd missed it. Uh, my supervisor was already jumping down my throat because he was frustrated by this month of no signal and he thought maybe it had been some kind of flare star that had erupted and died down and that I'd gone and missed it. Yes. <laughs> so I didn't dare tell him that I had actually missed the thing, that it reappeared and I hadn't been there. So I, I didn't dare go back for lunch or anything. I stayed out at the observatory till that relevant time of day came and switched to the high-speed chart recording. Unfortunately, the thing was still strong. With hindsight, we can now see that it was very weak. It was close to the threshold of detection. And for many days, it was just below the threshold, and it only poked its head up above the threshold occasionally. For it to do it two days running was pretty lucky. But I got it that second day, and it turned out to be a string of pulses. Right. It was quite clear as the paper flowed under the pen that this thing was pulsing, it looked as if it was pulsing regularly, and as soon as it had finished and was over for the day, I took the paper off the chart recorder and spread it out on the floor. I didn't have any rulers, but I made a makeshift ruler by taking a strip of paper and putting little tick marks on it and then sliding the strip of paper along and seeing that the tick marks kept coinciding with the pulses. So it was keeping constant pulse period to within the accuracy of my, quotes ruler. I didn't know what the hell it was. It was a period of one and one-third seconds. And, you know, you train as a physicist. You do all this undergraduate work, um, and you know that you've got to do some sort of test. And I thought, what kind of test can I do on this? The source had transited. It wasn't going to come back for almost 24 hours. What do you do? So I decided I'd test the time constant of the pen recorder. <laughs> the only thing I think of to test. So I got a little battery and put it across the pen recorder, and of course the pen went flick. And it was a very good pen recorder, and you couldn't measure the time constant of it. It was so good. What do you mean by the time constant? It's, uh, it's response to an incoming signal, is it? How rapidly it responds to a sharp signal, yes. Mm. Um, uh, does it respond sharply, or does it gradually wake up to the fact that a sharp signal has hit it? So I decided I'd better phone my supervisor, who was uh, working in one of the undergraduate laboratories in Cambridge, teaching students. And he'd probably been dealing with some not-so-bright Cambridge student, undergraduate, and then his grad student, who's supposed to be brighter but doesn't at that point sound it, phones him up and says, Hey, Tony, you know that funny signal? It's a string of pulses, one and a third seconds apart. And it's nothing to do with the time constant of the chart recorder either. <laughs> <laughs> and Tony says, well, that settles it. Must be man-made. Because Tony knew what I didn't know, and that is that if you've got something repeating period of one and a third seconds, it can only be one and a third light seconds across or less, which makes it pretty small for an astronomical object. And to have something pulsing at one and a third seconds sounds awfully artificial. It's somebody in the next door laboratory and they've set a signal generator to a period of one and a third seconds or mm. something like that. Tony was interested enough to come out to the observatory the next day. And this is really pushing our luck because now it's been strong for two days in a row. Um, and he stood looking over my shoulder as I switched the high-speed recorder. And fortunately, it performed for a third day in a row and in came a string of pulses. So Tony saw it for his own eyes. And people say, was it great fun? Was it exciting? And no, it was worrying. <laughs> Tony was quite convinced there was something wrong with the equipment. 
and we spent the next month trying to find out what was wrong mm. and we gradually eliminated things. We established that to a degree of accuracy it went round with the stars which meant it wasn't Joe Bloggs driving down the road home from work in a badly suppressed car because Joe Bloggs was getting off work four minutes earlier each day. That's half an hour a week. <laughs> he was keeping sidereal time. <laughs> he was keeping sidereal time. In fact, the only humans who keep sidereal time are other astronomers. <laughs> so Tony wrote to all the astronomical observatories, have you had a programme going since last August which could conceivably cause radio interference? And of course you ask a question like that and they'll deny all knowledge of interference. <laughs> so the answers were no. But we did ask... Then we asked a colleague um, with his research student who had a separate radio telescope, separate radio receiver, to see if their telescope could pick up the signal. That was scary. Um, the telescopes were slightly misaligned and the signal appeared in my telescope first and I saw it with my telescope so we knew it was strong and performing that day. And it should have appeared in the other telescope maybe 20 minutes, half an hour later. And we all stood by the pen recorder for that telescope and nothing happened. And nothing happened. And Tony and colleagues started walking down this very long laboratory saying, now what could it be that appears in our telescope but not yours? Could it be this? Could it be that? And I was pattering along behind them trying to keep up with them in every sense of the word. And the other research student, Robin, stayed by his pen recorder. And we got away down this long lab and suddenly there was a strangled cry. Here it is! And we went charging <laughs> back up the lab. And there it was, pulsing beautifully, exactly like it showed in mine. Mm. We had miscalculated by five minutes when it would show in the second radio telescope. Right. Fortunately, the miscalculation had only been five minutes. If it had been 25 minutes, we'd have given up and gone home. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was close. So there were things like that that we were doing for this first month to try and find out what the trouble was. Because I suppose at this time you were still treating it as a form of interference, you're worried that this signal could be screwing up the rest of your observations that you're interested in for the, the quasar observations, but you're slowly narrowing it down to, yeah. well, it's, if it's interference, it's a very odd kind of interference. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we, we really wanted to know what it was to be sure that we understood our equipment, um, particularly if it was a fault with the equipment. We had to know about it sooner rather than later because my whole thesis was in jeopardy then. Mm. And... Uh, so we were we were tackling it quite hard, but we were also being discreet because if it was something darn stupid, we didn't want to advertise <laughs> <laughs> that we'd picked up this funny signal and, oh, oh, whoops, it was because we didn't have the switch on the receiver set right. Yes. <laughs> yes. So we were, we were being circumspect, but not unduly secretive, just quietly trying to find out what was wrong. Keeping it to yourselves for the time being. Keeping it to ourselves for the time being and, and getting it sorted out. So we established it wasn't anything wrong with the equipment, which I was very relieved about because I had wired up that radio telescope and I was afraid I had literally got some wires crossed mm -hmm. and this is what was doing it. And, you know, I was going to be out on my ear without a PhD from Cambridge. <laughs> Not good on the CV. <laughs> so it wasn't a fault with the equipment. It didn't seem to be interference because it kept sidereal time. It wasn't other astronomers. And then we managed to establish that it was from beyond the Earth, indeed beyond the solar system. It was out in the Milky Way about 200 light years away. So how did you establish that? That's a little tricky to explain. It's using a technique called dispersion. 
It's something that radio amateurs may be familiar with. Because if you're a radio amateur, you'll have come across things called whistlers, which sound a bit like this. It's a descending whistling note. Starts with the high frequencies, ends up with the low frequencies. And that's caused by a lightning strike in New Zealand. Mm. The lightning strike generates a sharp radio wave. The radio signal propagates round to Britain, but it does a big loop following the magnetic field lines. And as it travels through near-Earth space the higher frequencies get less affected than the lower frequencies. The lower frequencies get delayed, and they arrive a little bit later, and so you get this descending signal. The same thing would happen if there were a lightning strike somewhere way out in space, if. Mm. Um, you'd get a sharp radio signal, and as it travelled to Earth, it would get dispersed. The high frequencies would arrive first, the low frequencies later. So we did this test on some of the pulses, um, and we established that indeed the high frequencies did arrive before the low frequencies. Basically what we had was two radio receivers tuned to slightly different frequencies and you could see the pulse arrive first in the high frequency radio receiver and then the low frequency. And the time delay between the two, along with a, a guesstimate, a very rough finger in the wind estimate of how many electrons there were in free space, gives you an estimate of how far the signals come to give that amount of dispersion. Mm. And it turned out to be a couple of hundred light years. So the source is way beyond the Earth, way beyond the solar system, but quite close within our galaxy. And very small. And very small. We not only had established it was very small, we'd also by that stage established that it kept pulsing very, very, very accurately. 1.3372795 seconds or something like that. Now, if something's going to keep pulsing very regularly, it's not getting tired, it's not flagging, so it's got to have big energy reserves. So it's got to be big. Mm. So it's big and it's small. And it's 200 light years away. Boink! <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you sharpen up those statements. Um, it's a good example of science at work. When we say it's big, it's got big energy reserves, we actually mean it's massive, mm. lots of mass. When we say it's small because of the rapid repetition rate, we're saying it's small in diameter. Mm. And we now know these things in neutron stars, which are very dense. There's a lot of mass in a very small volume. So yeah, they are massive and they're small in dimension. But of course, that's Hindsight, yes. our best developed faculty, as they say. <laughs> At the time, we were having trouble making sense of this. Radio astronomers are aware at the back of their minds that if there are other civilizations out there in space, it may be the radio astronomers that first pick up the signal. Mm -hmm. um, they'd probably communicate using the hydrogen line at 21 centimetres. Not obvious why they'd communicate at 80 megahertz, which frequency we were at, but mm, just possibly, maybe, it's another civilization. Um, not a very intelligent civilization, if it is, because the frequency of their, the repetition rate of the signal is dead constant. So if they're sending us a signal, it's in the amplitude of the pulses. Yes. And that's a daft way to communicate across space. You use <laughs> FM, not AM. <laughs> so it didn't make total sense, but, you know, just faintly, possibly. And this is where the nickname Little Green Men came from. So we nicknamed that source Little Green Men. 
subsequently became Little Green Men, number one, when I found numbers two, three, and four, <laughs> but Little Green Men. And we argued that if it was Little Green Men, they were probably on a planet going round their sun, and as their planet went round their sun, we might see some small changes in the pulse period due to Doppler effect. So we started, or, well, we started, we were already making the measurements necessary. We continued carefully monitoring that pulse period um, over about three, four months, something like that. And we actually found some change in the pulse period, but it turned out to be due to the motion of the Earth around the sun, not the motion of a little green men's planet round their sun. So we proved that the Earth went round the sun, which <laughs> probably didn't need proving, but reassuring. It's always good <laughs> reassuring. Shows that we were doing the right sums. Mm. And after about a month of all these various tests, we were beginning to wonder just what to do. We really ought to publish this result, but we had awfully little clue what it was. <laughs> we didn't really want to say it was little green men. <laughs> um, and we had a discussion one evening, just before Christmas, uh, about how we were going to publish this. It was a high-level discussion with the head of the group and Tony and another senior member of staff. And since I happened to stumble in on the meeting, they invited me in as well. And we didn't resolve it. And I went home for supper that evening, really very, very fed up. I had six months of grant money left in which to finish observations, write a thesis and, and get another job. And some silly lot of little green men apparently had decided to use my frequency and my aerial <laughs> to signal to her. <laughs> because of all the special observations of this funny signal, the, the routine data analysis was falling behind. The system was still churning out a hundred feet of chart paper every day and mm. had been doing it now for four or five months. Which you'd have to analyse by eye. By eye, by hand, and my logbook is full of plaintive comments, now a thousand feet behind with the chart <laughs> analysis, now two thousand feet behind with the chart <laughs> analysis. Falling behind, that's <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> Yes. Measuring delays in feet. <laughs> yes. And after some supper, I decided to go back into the lab to do some more of this routine chart analysis. You could get in a few hours' work before they shut the lab at 10 o'clock at night. Um, at that point, we didn't have keys. You were shut in or you were shut out, and it was mm -hmm. your choice. At about quarter to 10, I was analysing a piece of chart, another bit of sky. Um, for those who are into astronomy, it was 12 hours away from Cassiopeia A, and the radio telescope was such that it could see Cassiopeia A through the back of the telescope. And it was a strong and messy signal with a lot of ionospheric scintillation. And in amongst all that garbage, I thought I saw a quarter inch of this sort of scruffy signal. It was by now about 13 minutes to 10. <laughs> I got out all the chart recordings that covered that bit of the sky, threw them out over the floor, and ascertained that on occasion, when the garbage from lower cast wasn't too bad, you could see another piece of scruff. That piece of scruff went through the telescope beam at about two o'clock in the morning. And at about nine o'clock the next morning, I was going off for Christmas to Ireland with my fiancé-to-be to announce our engagement. I kind of had to be there. <laughs> <laughs> I see a decision is uh, <laughs> yep. in front of you. Yep. So I bundled up all the paper on the desk, 
uh, rushed out of the lab just as the janitor was closing the doors and at two o'clock in the morning went out to the observatory. It was dead cold, 21st of December. On occasion when it was very cold, the radio telescope refused to work at full belt. Never discovered what the problem was. But sure enough, when I got out there that night, the telescope was working at about half power. Mm. No way was it going to see a weak signal. So I swore at it and I breathed on it and I flicked switches and I did everything I could think of. Standard experimental techniques. Yep, yep, Mm. that's right. And I got it to work for five minutes. And it was the right five minutes and it was the right beam setting. Uh. And I switched on the high-speed recorder and in came blip, 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 blip. This time one and a quarter seconds apart. The first one had been one and a third seconds. But clearly of the same ilk. Yes. A relative, but in a different part of the sky. Totally Mm. different part of the sky. And that was great. That was the sweet moment. That was Eureka. That must have been incredible, because now it's Little Green Men 2. It's not no longer your 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 first observation was no longer isolated this was right but it can't be little green men either because mm. there's unlikely to be two lots of little green men on opposite sides of the universe both deciding to signal to a rather inconspicuous planet earth both deciding to use a rather silly frequency and a very daft technique <laughs> <laughs> it had to be some new kind of source right. Incidentally, we'd worked out there'd been TV broadcasts in and around the VHF band for about 40 years at that stage, 40 years max. Um, So anything within 40 light years of the Earth might have known that Earth was inhabited. But our first source was 200 light years away. So they had no inkling Mm. that we existed. Mm. But anyway, discovering the second one really killed that. I piled the chart recording on Tony's desk with a note saying, hey, Tony, think I've got a second one. Disappeared off to Ireland for Christmas, got Julie engaged, reappeared after Christmas. Tony had kindly kept the survey running, which meant he put fresh paper in the chart recorders and fresh ink in the inkwells. And he popped all the charts on my desk, neatly rolled up for me to analyse. (laughs) (laughs) And when I got back from Christmas, sporting an engagement ring, which was the daftest thing I ever did, found this pile of charts on my desk. Couldn't find Tony, but it was quite clear what I had to do. So I sat down and started doing some chart analysis. And I was looking at a third totally different part of the sky and suddenly realised I could see two lots of this scruffy type of signal about two foot apart on the same strip of chart recording. And at that point, Tony turned up out of his meeting. I said, Tony, look at this. I think by that stage I'd got out some previous charts from that area and established that, you know, there was signal there. And Tony said, how many more have you missed? Go back through all your old recordings and check. <laughs> and there were about two miles of <laughs> And this was months before you were presumably supposed to finish yeah, your, yeah. your PhD. And yeah, that's right, yes. And the money runs out and... We subsequently confirmed the third and the fourth ones, um, and I went back through all the chart recordings and found no more likely candidates. And in fact, that radio telescope, I think, only found one or maybe two more pulsars in total. Mm. The fourth pulsar that we found was very interesting. It had a period of only one quarter of a second and could on occasion be very strong, like the pen hit the end stops. 
and it became a bit of a tourist attraction amongst the research students in the group. They'd say, when is 0950 transiting, Jocelyn? And I'd tell them. And they'd say, I want to go out to the observatory then. And I'd say, why? I'd say, I want to see a pen banging across the end stops four times a second. <laughs> bum, 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 People went out just to... (laughs) (laughs) It was also important because it was clearly stretching what rudimentary theories we had. It was that much faster. Instead Mm -hmm. of one and a quarter, it was a quarter second period. So that's how the first four pulsars were discovered. What a fantastic story. That's spectacular. That's science in action. That's science in action, (laughs) yeah. Another question, though. You mentioned that this last pulsar you mentioned had such a strong signal. Yeah. Did it not occur to you at the time that this, you know, this very strong sort of, you know, banging of this needle backwards and forwards was something strange? Or is this just, you thought, oh, it's Farmer Joe going past in his tractor or something like that? It looked like interference. It was Mm. so strong. Mm -hmm. It was only on occasion when it dropped its strength that I could see it was one of those regular scruffy signals. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What happened then? So presumably the, there was a happy end to the story. You, 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 you got your PhD finished. But the, the, these observations were published in an appendix. Yeah. Why? Was this because yeah. it was, you weren't 100% sure or there was no, no explanation or what? No. Um, Tony told me that it was too late to change the title of my thesis. I was halfway through my third year at this stage. Right. From what I know of university systems now, I'm not sure he was right. But, of course, I believed him at the time. And it was a pretty black day because I'd spent a lot of time on these pulsing signals and had rather neglected the quasars. And I had to get back up to speed on them and write a thesis and defend it. Um, I did that, but um, I put the pulsars in an appendix because I thought there ought to be some contemporary account of the discovery of this signal. Mm. Yeah. So you had to go back through all those thousands of feet of data to analyse for pulsars. Yes. Sorry, for for quasars. quasars. Yes, that's right. And what was the next step then? You, you published your PhD. In it, there was, a, the, as you say, a contemporary record of these yep. interesting new objects. Yep. What happened then? Well, the results had also been published in Nature by then. Uh, we wrote the first one up, um, and it was published at the end of February. So by that stage, we knew that there were a few others, but we hadn't really sussed them out properly. We put the next three in another paper. The... Um, publication of the first paper was interesting. Martin Ryle phoned up John Maddox, who was editor of Nature, and more or less said, we've got something interesting, hold the presses. Really? (laughs) I think John Maddox probably refereed the paper himself. (laughs) Just to check. (laughs) I've I've asked him this, and he didn't answer the question directly. But he turned the paper around in two weeks, and it came out at the end of February. Tony held a colloquium in the Cavendish just a few days before Nature was published. And we kept fairly quiet about these results because we still weren't 100% sure what we were dealing with. So we were only at that stage prepared to go public. And Tony gave the colloquium a pretty titillating title and everybody in Cambridge came. And Fred Hoyle came and sat in the front row. And Tony gave this colloquium and announced this discovery and said we found a few others and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. At that stage, we weren't too sure what we were dealing with. We knew it wasn't little green men. One possibility, it was white dwarfs with oscillations in their atmosphere, somehow launching shock waves. although the quarter-second pulsar was pushing that. And for some reason, you'd have to be seeing some of the harmonics and not the fundamental, and it was all a bit iffy. Right. 
And the other possibility was a rotating thing called a neutron star, which nobody had really come across before. Um, some mad theoreticians had proposed their existence um, yes. 30 years beforehand, but, you know, they were tiny, you'd never see them. And so we had these two models kicking around of a rotating neutron star or an oscillating white dwarf, and we weren't too sure what. And at the end of the colloquium, and it just shows the power of Fred's brain, Fred said in his best Yorkshire accent, I don't think it's a white dwarf. I think it's a supernova remnant. <laughs> and Fred was right. Yes. But just think of the physics that had been going on in his brain. Mm. Um, he, he started by saying he hadn't heard of these things before, which we were quite relieved about because we didn't want word out too widely. Mm. So he was doing this from cold in the course of a 40, 50 minute talk. Wow. And homing in on the right conclusion it was it was amazing amazing yes so now we've gone from um the the three or four original pulsars that you discovered to how many have we got now it's over 1600 I think. 1700 so or 1760 or something yeah maybe even 1800 yep. and they show a spectacular variety going from the sort of the second period pulsars mm -hmm. of the sort that you discovered through to these incredibly fast ones the millisecond mm -hmm. pulsars so yeah and uh, we the very first interview, I think, that the Jodcast presented was with Michael Kramer at Jodrell Bank about the, the double pulsar, oh, which is mm. a, an amazingly, exquisitely mm. sensitive test of Einstein's theory of general relativity. So it's yeah. a, a field which you've started has, has become a, a fascinating field of physics in its own right. And isn't it interesting that it's still a very exciting, dynamic, rapidly changing field? Mm -hmm. You'd think after 40 years it would have settled into an interesting but mature phase. Yes. Blow me, is it? Heck. <laughs> it's still rolling in all sorts of staggering discoveries. Yeah, mm. it's fascinating. What, are the, what is the most interesting part of Pulsar uh, study now as you see it? Whoa. Um, there's a lot of interest in the high magnetic field end of pulsars, neutron stars, with X-ray and gamma-ray astronomy also contributing to that. So there's some interesting things going on there. And some of the transient pulsars, the ones that pulse once in a blue moon and then shut up for 25 pulses and then do another pulse and shut up for 13 pulses. And those They're also up in, in that same sort of area. So there's quite a lot of attention focused there. There's interesting questions around whether there are some high-mass pulsars, some high-mass neutron stars, which would really strain our theories of gravity if it's true. So what do we mean by high-mass? Um, the canonical mass for a pulsar is about 1.3 or 1.4 times the mass of the Sun. There's hints, or maybe even more than hints, of some around about two solar masses. Uh, so that's very interesting. But why is it a problem for us? Why should a, a heavier mass neutron star be a problem? They shouldn't exist if, our, if the Einsteinian theory of gravity is right, mm -hmm. put crudely. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a few ifs and buts and caveats on that, but that's broadly what the thrust is. Right. Um, so they're interesting to people who are interested in the theory of gravity. And breaking it. And breaking it. <laughs> And then there's also the question of how fast can a neutron star rotate? How fast can a pulsar spin? Uh, there's suggestions that the fastest is about 700 revolutions per second. 
and the fastest one discovered is jolly close to that. Right. If they get a faster one still, again, we're going to be pushing on some understandings of what these things are. Is that because if it rotates too quickly, it'll just throw itself apart? There is that, but even before it gets to that stage, it's reckoned that the inside gets a bit wobbly and turbulent, um, sends out gravitational radiation, which effectively stops it spinning as fast as it wants to and puts a natural limit on it. Right. That's the theory. Yep. Watch this space. may be broken quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Exciting times. Yep. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. That was Jocelyn Bell at the National Astronomy Meeting. And just another quick reminder that you can download that as an individual segment on the Jodcast website. Yes, we do keep everything on our website. And from plenty of our live shows, we've been asking people to go to the iTunes uh, directory and give us a review. And loads of people have. Thank you very much for doing so, especially all of you who gave us five stars. We love you guys. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We do. For example, Rick said that we're doing a marvellous job. Complexity broken down to bite-sized chunks. We've even been given l'astronomie supérieure, le vrai de vrai, best of the bunch, from Circular Polarization in Canada. And we had a review from Bart B, which unfortunately we just missed off the last episode of the Jodcast, even though he reviewed us before that one was released. I hadn't got around to checking the Island iTunes store. Uh, thanks also to C. Houghton, to Chase Scott, at Alby, Dick Darkroom, fail physicist, Kirkwall, Lakes WA, and also to Dollar, uh, who said, great stuff, it's dark and light matter for everyone. Yes, so thanks to everyone who has reviewed us on the uh, iTunes store. Uh, The reviews that you give us help us make the Jodcast better and also helps our ratings, as you can understand. And makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And we do feel nice and warm and fuzzy inside, feeling as if we've done a good job. So thanks to everyone. And please, if you haven't reviewed us yet, please do go to the iTunes store and review us, please. And talking about feeling warm and fuzzy, if you go outside in the evenings nowadays, you'll find that it's pretty warm out there. And what better to make you feel fuzzy other than seeing Venus in the sky? It'll probably be listening to Ian Morrison's Night Sky. And here he is to tell us all about it. Well, the the night sky in June, and I suppose one could say it's not really the best month because... There isn't all that much night. And in fact, from the northern part of the United Kingdom, it never gets truly dark. So perhaps it's not the very best time for looking for very, very faint objects, which is a bit of a pity because high in the south around midnight is the constellation of Virgo. And between Virgo and the tail of Leo the Lion, which is setting towards the west, is the region of the sky called the realm of the galaxies. It's where we're looking towards the heart of our local supercluster of galaxies. And we're just a small little group of galaxies right on the outside of this giant supercluster. And that's the direction in which the centre lies. So there we see many, many galaxies, and lots of them are in the Messier catalogue. Perhaps the brightest is M87. So as I've said, Leo is setting down to the west, Virgo is a little bit in the southwest, and we're now coming up to the constellations Libra, Ophiuchus, and below them Scorpius and Sagittarius. Sadly, from northern England, where I live, we don't really see them at all well. 
the red star Antares in Scorpius is a very bright star in principle, but it rarely shows up very well from here. Good reason to have a trip sometime in the summer to southern France with some really dark skies. You can see that part of the sky so much better. The star fields around Scorpius and Sagittarius, which is lying towards the center of our galaxy, are some of the richest and most beautiful in the heavens. And I would suggest, if you possibly can, getting as far south in Europe as you can and looking up with a pair of binoculars, it can be a very rewarding experience. High above, we have, in fact, the constellation of Hercules, And in that lies what is called a globular cluster. It's called M13. It's a group of a million or so stars in a tight ball, really, and looks very nice in in a small telescope. These are very, very old stars, and these globular clusters date from the formation of our galaxy. Now, rising in the southeast, we have a beautiful region of the sky, perhaps second only to the region around Orion and Taurus. And it comprises Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. The three bright stars in those constellations, which are Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra, and Altair in Aquila, make up what I believe Patrick Moore called the Summer Triangle. It's very easy to spot. One nice little thing to try if you have a pair of binoculars is to start at the lowest of those stars, which is Altair, and move about one-third of the way up towards Vega. And you should be able to pick out, against a fairly dark patch of sky, it's called the Cygnus Rift, a lot of dust there, a little group of stars, which is actually normally called Brocky's Cluster, but everyone calls it the Coat Hanger, because it looks like an upside-down coat hanger. And it's actually very sweet to find. So have a try for that. That obviously gets better later in the year when it's darker, but you should be able to find it. And obviously high overhead, we have Ursa Major, the great bear. And the part of that that we all observe most easily is the plough. The Americans call it the, the Big Dipper. And again, with binoculars, if you look at the middle star of the handle of the plough or of the ladle, the Big Dipper, you can actually see it's a double star system called Alcor and Mizar. And with binoculars, you'll see one of those becomes a rather sweet little double star, a very pretty system to look at with a small telescope. So that's just to have a look at the the stars that we see this month. What about the planets? Well, it's actually not bad for planets. As the month begins, Venus is still very high in the sky, at sunset. You can't fail to miss it. And we've been having some very nice conjunctions of Venus and the Moon. Lots of people have been seeing these and writing in about them. And there's going to be another one of those uh, around the 18th of um, June. Again, we'll come back to that when I talk about Venus in a bit more detail. It's gradually, as June continues, going to be falling back a little bit towards the horizon at sunset but we've been able to see it beautifully for the the last few weeks. On June the 9th, Venus reaches its greatest elongation. That's the angle between Venus and the Sun at about 45.4 degrees is at its maximum. And that's when we ought to see sort of a half phase, just like we see the Moon at first quarter. But in fact, most people 
when they observe on that night or that particular time, actually observe a rather different phase. And they seem to think that you get half phase just a few days earlier. It's called dichotomy. And the phenomena is called the, the scroter effect. So if you do have a small telescope, it's actually worth having a look at Venus around that time to see whether you observe this effect or not. And you obviously need a small telescope. And because it's relatively low down, the atmosphere upsets the image somewhat. And if you use a colour filter just to get a particular band of, uh, of colours rather than the whole of the spectrum, you'll have a much cleaner image. So Venus is still a very nice planet to observe. Saturn is setting down towards the west. It will still be seen just after sunset for the first couple of weeks of June, but it's, it's really past its best. But on the other hand, Jupiter is coming up to its best this month. And that's because on the 5th and 6th of June, Jupiter is at what is called opposition. It's when it's opposite the sun from the Earth. And the three the Sun and Earth and Jupiter lie in a straight line. So, in fact, Jupiter is nearest to us, so its angular size will be greatest, and hence, with a small telescope, we should see the, the most detail. Sadly, at the moment, Jupiter lies in the constellation of Ophiuchus, part of which dips right down between Scorpius and Sagittarius. I don't really know why they, they laid the constellations out like that. And that's almost at the most southerly point of the ecliptic. Now, the ecliptic's the path of the sun across the sky, and that part is where the sun is in midwinter. But because all the planets lie in a plane, roughly speaking, that's where we tend to see the planets. So I'm afraid Jupiter does not rise very high in the sky. So our views of it from our northerly latitudes will not really be very good. Again, the atmosphere has quite an effect, splitting up the light into different colours, acts like a prism, so it blurs the image. So it's a bit of a pity. So it's a good, good reason for perhaps having a trip down to South Africa or something like that uh, to have a look when Jupiter's high in the sky. But it is at its best this month. So let's come to Mercury. Uh, Mercury is visible in the western sky just after sunset. And in fact, on June the 2nd, it's furthest in angle from the sun. It's about 23.4 degrees away. So you can see it after sunset, basically between where the sun has set and where you'll see the very bright planet Venus. The best thing to do is to find a location with a good low western horizon, be there before sunset so you actually can see where the sun sets, and then as it gets darker, use binoculars to sweep the sky up and to the left of where the sun has set. And that's when you should fairly easily pick up Mercury. Follow the line from that point up to the planet Venus, which should be shining really quite easily to, and easily to see, and you should find it. One way of distinguishing it from any bright stars in the region is that planets don't tend to twinkle as much. So if it looks steady whereas other objects in the sky nearby look as though they're twinkling, as they often do near the horizon, then you'll know you've got Mercury. So you've still got a week or so, perhaps, to, to have a look for it before it disappears, getting too close to the sun. I've mentioned Saturn. Saturn is now setting in the west soon after sunset, so it's past its best. We also have, of course, Mars. Now, Mars is actually visible just before sunrise, but it's very low in the southeast. 
and it's really not worth looking at until later this year. It is going to come to opposition. It'll be closest to us in December this year. And although it's not going to be such a close opposition as some of the ones we've had recently, that's the sort of time when I'll be telling you what to look out for. So it's there, but uh, you know, not at its best at the moment. Finally, I don't often say much about the moon. Um, the moon gets overlooked. A lot of people object to it being there because it, of course, means it's harder to see faint objects. But there's a lot of fun in actually looking at the moon itself. Um, I've been particularly interested in what the moon is doing this week. And uh, I can tell you it's going to be at New Moon on, on June the 15th. And that's because we're having a festival here around the weekend of the 16th, 17th. And we hope to recreate one of the things that the Lovell telescope did in its very early days, which was in fact sending a signal to the moon and back. So obviously the moon has to be in the sky. We're going to be sending some poems written by young people around the United Kingdom. Now, in fact, we can't transmit from Jodrell, so we're going to transmit from a distant location and receive those signals back with the Lovell telescope. We'll be doing that in the afternoon, and the moon will be quite high up to the southeast. So it's a good time. Um, you won't see the moon yourself then, of course, in the daylight, but it's very good for us to try some moon bounce. So when the moon is there, binoculars will show you quite a number of the craters and the maria and the highlands, but it's a good reason to get yourself a small telescope, they're not very expensive, to have a look at some of the detail and perhaps have a look to see where the Apollo astronauts landed such a long time ago. Good hunting. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Now, guys, you're, you spend a lot of your time up at Jodrell Bank. Tell us what's happening at the Visitor Centre this month. In the middle of the month, on the 15th to 17th of June, we're having the First Move Literary Festival. A literary festival? It sounds, it sounds very arty. Are we, are, we getting into the, are we getting into the arts arena here, are we? We are. It's a way to put astronomy in a different format to the, the normal type of experience that you get at a star party. There's going to be several authors who have written books about um, science fiction and science-related stories, and they're going to be discussing the books that they write. We'll also be having some talks by astronomers explaining what we do at Jodrell Bank. There's also going to be an interpretive move of the Lovell Telescope where an astronomer will be explaining what the telescope is actually doing when it moves around. And What's the motivation for this all of a sudden, this, this literary event? Well, it's time to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the first move of the Lovell Telescope. First move, so, so this is the, 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 the first time that the Lovell Telescope was moved. Yes, so that was back in 1957. Who is going to be taking part in this literary festival? Who exactly is going to be coming along and talking to us? Okay, we have Alan Garner, who's an award-winning author. He actually lives quite near to us, mm -hmm. um, and he'll be talking about his sense of time and place in his fiction. And on Saturday, we'll have Jeanette Winterson, who's the author of Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit and Tangle Wreck. And on Sunday, we have Jed Mercurio, who's the author of Bodies, and he's currently working on a TV adaptation of Frankenstein. Very cool. So those are happening each evening around 7.30 onwards. Okay. Uh, and people should contact the visitor centre at Jodder Bank. So this is Friday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. The 15th, right? 16th and 17th right. of June. Okay, so there's something happening usually in the uh, early afternoon at about 2pm and then there's something occurring in the evening each yep. of those days. You can find out more on the website at manchester.ac.uk slash Bank or you can contact the Jodder Bank Visitor Centre on... 
01477-571-339. And if you can't be bothered rewinding, that was 01477-571-339. Right, well, unfortunately, that brings this issue of the Judcast to an end. But don't worry, we will be back in the middle of the month with an interview about MOND. That's the Modification of Newtonian Dynamics. And also your favourite, Ask an Astronomer. Well, it's my favourite, really. I don't know why I keep on saying it's your favourite. It's my favourite. <laughs> Voices for the intro and outro provided by Alicia Lane Matheson as Mrs. Robinson and Tom Backus as Benjamin. No attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright relating to The Graduate, which remains the property of Studio Canal. So, thanks then to Megan for the news, to Ian for the night sky, Stuart and Nick, thank you for the interview and joining me, and thanks also to everyone who has reviewed us, friended us on Twitter, and dug us, in fact, all of you for downloading us. So, thank you ever so much for that, and so, until the middle of the month, goodbye. See you. Bye. Gosh, I... Can we, um, uh, do this again? Why, yes, Benjamin. I used to be able to only listen every month. But now they podcast twice in a month. You mean, in two weeks' time? Of course, Benjamin. Gosh, I've got to get home to check out the show notes. You sure you don't want to stay and look at the night sky? With the entire back catalog to listen to, though? Are you kidding? See you in two weeks! Youth of today.